0: Well, we are again, like I said, continuing forward in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been here for uh, this is week ten of this series. So, uh, sort of the inaugural sermon in the earthly ministry of Jesus, captured in Matthew's chapter five through seven. Uh, we've one sermon for Jesus. We're turning into uh, fourteen or fifteen sermons, and so uh, we're taking our time with this because this is sort of the foundational document for discipleship as it's been understood through the history. Of the church, and before we jump in today, I just wanted to take a moment and uh, and share my heart with you uh, and things I was carrying with me and praying with me or pr- praying for you uh, this week, praying uh, just that God would help us. So, after ten weeks in this series, it can already feel um, a little bit lengthy, like you have some sermon on the mount fatigue, right? And there's ways where you're like, "We're still here," and and yes, we're we're still here. And I was praying for us this week because I was just feeling like we needed a halftime speech, so to speak, uh, in rallying ourselves around this teaching from Jesus, uh, because there's a way in which, if we're not careful, we can approach God's Word, or we can approach the sermon moment like an information transfer, like, like we're consuming biblical data. And, and I mention that because we live in an information world. like that, That's the information age. You have Um, resources and books and blogs and a host of other things at your fingertip at any moment. Uh, You can binge on all kinds of 24-hour news cycles. For those who are hypochondriacs, WebMD is a blessing and a curse, right? You can look things up and have information. You have social media and mom blogs and podcasts. And the list goes on of information intake that we have Day in and day out. And it would be easy to assume that what we're doing here on a Sunday is just one more moment of information intake that we have already ongoingly throughout the week, right? But this is just one more moment of consuming a tidbit, and this is just the Christian version for that, right? In a way where we look at what we're doing um, as the latest spiritual hot take or discipleship pro tip, right? And I just want to say that like, as we approach the sermon, that's not what we're doing. And so maybe just to give a bottom line, to sort of rally us around what we're trying to do today, I just want to drop this in the room. Growing in Jesus is not knowing more about Jesus. Just, just drop on that for a second. Growing in Christ, growing as a follower of Jesus, is not more information about Jesus, So you could have varsity-level knowledge of the Bible and the things of God and still not really be a disciple. And you could have junior varsity C-team knowledge of Jesus and the Bible and be very much a disciple, right? Here's what discipleship is. Growing in Jesus is becoming obedient to what we know and being formed in him. That's discipleship, right? That's discipleship. Not knowing more, but becoming obedient to what we know. So here's a way of saying it. We become very unhelpful. This in here even becomes very unhelpful to our city when our knowledge outstretches our practice. And in many ways, it always will, right? We're battling against our flesh and sin. But when our knowledge outstretches practice, we become what Jesus warns us against, hypocrites. Hypocrites, right? And so what we want to do through the Sermon on the Mount, this has been the heart for the whole sermon series, we actually want to hear from Jesus, agree with him, even where it stings and where we're bucking against him, and learn to be formed by him. That's what this whole series has been about, and today Jesus is going to speak to us on the issue of our money and possessions. And so you think, oh, wow, Pastor, you really fumbled that one, right? Mother's Day, a sermon on money and possessions, right? Um, Well, it's not like we cherry-picked this one. Uh, This is just sort of in the flow of where we've been systematically working through the Sermon on the Mount. But I want you to notice something interesting here around this topic. Jesus talks a lot about money. And no one likes their money being talked about, right? Like, it's a personal thing. But even the most non-religious person is totally cool with Jesus at the level of being a teacher, at the level of being an ethicist and a humanitarian. Like everyone is cool with Jesus, religious or not religious, so long as you remain at the level of ethics and teaching and philanthropy, right? And yet he talks a lot about money. He talks a lot about money. Out of 38 parables, these are stories that Jesus tells with a spiritual punch. Out of 38 parables, over 16 of them are about money and possessions. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 288 verses. That averages out to be one out of every 10 verses in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John directly deal with the subject of money. You think about the Bible as a whole. There's 500 verses on prayer. There's less than 500 verses on faith. There's over 2,000 verses dealing with money and possessions. And so Jesus talks about this a lot. And so to say I'm cool with Jesus, but then you go, yeah, but that means he's speaking against things that you don't like to talk about, you're having to take all of Jesus if you're going to get the words of Jesus, and he speaks a lot about this, and here's the point. Jesus isn't talking about money to get rich. (laughs) Jesus didn't talk about money to be a con. If so, he was the worst in history. He was a homeless Jewish man. Like, he failed at the con arts, right? Failed. Totally failed but that wasn't his goal. He didn't talk about this stuff to get rich or to get in your pocketbook. He talked about money so much because maybe more than anything else, money stands between us and God. Money stands at the crossroads between us and a deep and meaningful life. And so when we think about the conversation around money and spirituality or Jesus and money, very often you and I can tend to approach this conversation like someone who's being given an intervention. Like your friends rally around you and want to address an issue that they see in your life that's damaging, but we as the one who's being intervened with go, how? Hey, I hear what you're saying. Thank you for thinking of me. Thank you for caring, but I got this. Like we we tend to experience like an intervention, but we want to go, the addiction isn't what you're saying it is. I, I got this. I got this, despite the fact that we're buried in Amazon Prime boxes, right, while the conversation's happening. And so when it comes to this topic, here's just what I want to submit to you before we jump in the scriptures. We say this often, but it bears being said again, Jesus is the only sober person in the room on this issue. He's the only one who sees money and possessions and this world with clarity, After all, the world tried to kill him, and his grave is empty, right? He's the only one who sees it clear. So so let's get to it. Verses 19 and 20, look at what he says. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither Moth nor rust destroys, and thieves do not break in and steal. We talk about what Jesus is saying here. I want you to notice where this falls in the flow of the Sermon on the Mount. This comes on the heels of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks in this sort of threefold teaching where Jesus talks about the devout life of caring for the poor, of prayer, and of fasting. And at the end of each of those teachings, he has this refrain. The refrain was, Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Three different times he has this refrain. So as if to say, if you're living in the world for the applause and the approval of man, you've got your reward. But those who would live with honesty and integrity before God, your father who sees in secret, your father who values stuff the world doesn't always value, he will, and the key word said three times, reward you. The next statement coming off of reward is, oh yeah, and speaking of reward, don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, as if Jesus is saying, speaking about money, have a life that's rich toward God, and he connects the dot to how we so often assume wealth and blessing down here. So according to Jesus, there's two options you have. There's two options, and only two, for how you can spend your life building treasure for yourself there's two options and one won't last one won't last so the first he says you can spend your life acquiring treasure for yourself here and now you can store up reward for yourself here and now you can accumulate wealth for yourself here and now and he says here it won't last you're going to lose it so this is not a rebuke against a 401k Jesus is not trying to stiff arm a savings account. Like, that's not what he's doing. It is wise and good to provide for your family. It's wise and good to think strategically about your future with what God has given to you. At the same time, though, it's not a mystery that you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Right? You never see a hearse going to a burial site and hitched on the back of it a U-Haul truck. Why? Because you're going to lose it. You can't take it with you. There's a reason why even earthly inheritance often turns tenuous with families. You're going to lose it. But then he turns in verse 20 and he says, there's another way you can seek to build your life and a treasure, a reward for yourself where you can't lose it. Look at verse 20. He says, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. Okay, so pause on this for a second. Jesus here, I've got to say this in the room because it runs totally against what's, what's in, sort of intuitive to us. He's not talking like a financial advisor Jesus is not sort of giving you and laying out some investment options. Jesus is speaking as the king of the universe with how he designed life to work. So the point Jesus is making is this. If you've hitched your life to me, if you've become a disciple, if you've hitched your life to Jesus, then you've become a citizen of his kingdom, which means everything that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you. Just so you know, if we're all sort of in together, that's that's the beauty and the good news of the gospel. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. And the inheritance that is coming to Jesus from God the Father to rule and reign over the cosmos is also your inheritance because his death and resurrection sealed you to be co-heirs with him. Everything belongs to those who are in Christ. Christ and all else with it. So this is what it means to be a disciple. So if that's true, if that's true, the reason Jesus speaks this way, though so contrary to us, if it's true that everything belongs to us in Christ, then that has to change the way we see stuff. Like that's gonna have direct impact on the way we see things. When you rightly understand your life and life in the kingdom of God Hoarding doesn't make sense. When you rightly understand your life in the kingdom of God, accumulating for the sake of accumulating more and covering over pain doesn't make sense. It it just doesn't line up together. There's no time for those things when you stand in a right view of Jesus and his kingdom because there you understand whether or not you're rich in this present age. This is not just spiritual pastor speak, but it feels that way because it's so against what's instinctive to us. If you're in Jesus, whether or not you're rich now or not, you have everything in him. That so often feels like a conceptual, ethereal, theoretical, abstract thing because we don't have knee-jerk that way. He's trying to recalibrate our senses when he says this. So this doesn't mean, don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that your cars or that your house or that climbing the ladder in your vocation or that vacations or 401ks, none of that stuff is wrong. None of that stuff is wrong. It just means that they aren't the point and that's not where life is found. And I know that all of us in this room would say that, but so much of our time is spent trying to get there, right? Right? It's just not the point. Those things, if seen in light of the kingdom of God, are means by which we can extend the kingdom through the blessings God's given to us, our privilege for the poverty of others, right? For the poverty of others. And so what he does next, so he said now, don't build up treasures for yourself here on earth, but build up, store up treasures in heaven So now he's going to go, I I predict the why question in the room. Why do you say that way, Jesus? Show me your homework. Well, that's where the passage goes next, and that's where we'll spend the rest of our time. He's going to give us three reasons why he says to store up treasures in heaven. The first is in 21. Look at what it says. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, So this passage, although we're now thinking about money, isn't primarily about money. It's primarily about your heart, but Jesus is addressing it this way because money is so often attached to our heart, right? Money is so often attached to the core of us. So this is where the saying gets difficult because what Jesus is saying is this, even though you would say, no, 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 God has my heart. He's my treasure. He's not so interested in what you would say with your mouth as he is with looking at the real-time artifacts in your life. So you could say, I have my I Love Jesus coffee mug on the table. He's clearly my treasure. Don't let my car fool you. My treasure's in heaven, right, as you cruise in your Escalade. You can have the bumper stickers, he's my treasure, but I'm looking at real-time artifacts. Where's the crosshairs of the anxiety in your life? I'm looking at real-time artifacts. Where's the location of your stress? Tell me about the commander of how you spend your time. Because that's how you know for sure where you're laying up treasure. Where your resources and where your anxiety and where your stress is being directed, that's where your treasure is. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So a couple of ways to practically gauge where your heart is, where your treasure is, is on the one hand, by looking at your negative emotions, by looking at your negative emotions. So where in your life are you chronically anxious? Where in your life are you chronically anxious? Underneath that, I would ask a second question. What's the fear that's driving that anxiety? It's the fear that's driving that anxiety because there's typically like, okay, I just feel so intense right now, but there's a reason you feel so intense right now, so what's that thing? Right? The second question is Where in your life are you quick to be defensive and feel the need to prove yourself? Where do you feel quick to be defensive and prove yourself? And the second question is like the first one. What's the fear there that's driving your need to defend? What's driving, what's the fear there that's like, that makes your heart so hot that you've got to prove something? Getting to that is really important in figuring out sort of your treasure locator, right? On the other hand, you can look at your positive emotions. Where in your life, if you were given truth serum and you knew you wouldn't be seen as annoying to other people, where in your life, if you could, would you just brag all the time? Like, where would you just boast and be that guy? You're like, I don't know anyone like that. You're that guy, (laughs) right? Because where you tend to just be so proud of self-put-togetherness is also an indication of where your treasure is, where your treasure is. And so if you're using your wealth and your finances and your job and your house and your car and your education as your sense of security and peace, here's what Jesus is saying if you're looking at the stuff of this world as your stability, the problem is you're building your stability on stuff that in a second can be taken from you and in a second can be mismanaged. And so if the bottom falls out, what happens? Don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven but on, or on earth, but rather in heaven where neither wrath nor must can destroy and thieves can't break in And steal from you. It's not that those things are wrong. They're just not identity markers. Here's the second reason he gives us for why he tells us to do this. It's in 22 and 23. And I want you to read with me carefully because it's going to feel like cryptic Jesus is teaching here for a second. but, But it's right in the flow. Look at what it says. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Okay, so again, even though it sounds like <laughs> cool translation, what what is the what are you trying to say here, Jesus? Even that day it was common Jewish understanding that wherever your eye was fixed, whatever you were sort of um, your whole life was driven toward, then, then naturally your heart and your soul would soon follow. Right? So Jesus is saying, if you're, the way you're seeing the world is going to be the way in which your heart and your soul is being formed. This is what Jesus means when he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. Wherever you are fixed is where you're being formed, to say it that way, bottom line. This is the idea of Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you, God, is the fountain of life. For in your light, in the light of God, well now I see light. Right? So it's like if when I see things in the perspective of where God is, well, then I see clearly. Right? That's what it's suggesting. So the idea is what Jesus is saying here, if you see light, or if you see the, the world in light of your Father in heaven, then you'll begin to see what really matters, and your hearts are directed differently. But he spends more time on the back end of that verse. Look at 23. But if your eye is bad, if you don't see clear, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light is in you as darkness, if what you've been given to see with, you can't actually see with, well, then how blind, how dark will that be? If with your frame of reference, you choose to reject the wisdom of God here and you bend all of your resources in on yourself, storing up treasure in this world, he's saying you're going to lack the proper perspective to see what really matters If you bend in on yourself, seeing yourself as the provider but not God, he's saying you're going to be full of darkness. You're not going to see clear. That's not how it works. It might feel that way to you, but that's not what's really happening. So to put this in our real world, I read a statistic this week. 76% of Americans say they live paycheck to paycheck. That feels totally real. I would say maybe more, right? 70% 70 of Americans, 76%, would say live paycheck to paycheck. The follow-up says 72% would say that they live with mounting consumer debt. And there's nods in the room, right? So here's what this means. We're spending all that we have, and then we spend more of what we don't have Because the life that we feel like we have to accumulate for ourselves, that what we're earning can't give to us, and then we spend more of what we don't have and what we're not guaranteed to make up for. And so we spend like this. Why? Because somehow deep down inside of us, there's a belief system that says, if I have more stuff, if I can accumulate more, then maybe I can numb the pain that I feel. Right? If I can have more trinkets to play with, then I can numb the pain that I feel. I had a bad day. You know what sounds good? A new shirt. I had a bad day, you know what? I need a new TV, right? Somehow the ugly that we feel when life doesn't go the way we want it to seems to us to be made more beautiful by something I can buy for myself right? So here's maybe where I would say just to put your finger on this. If if there's a place in your life where you're feeling a darkness, like like a hovering discontent about your life, and you're struggling to put your finger on why you're feeling that because your circumstances don't suggest that you should feel that, but yet you have this abiding sense of discontent, the point Jesus is making here is maybe the first place you ought to look is where, where you're channeling your resources. Because if you're not seeing clear, then you're full of darkness. If, if you're not seeing in, in light of the kingdom of heaven, then you're seeing in light of the kingdom of the world, and that's dark, and that's confusing, and that's no wonder it's discontent. Over-internalizing our resources, curving in on ourself with our resources, the reason that's darkness is because that's exactly opposed to the kingdom of Jesus. What's happening in the gospel of Jesus is that God the Father turns all of his resources in God the Son outward toward the world to save the world. God turns nothing in on himself. He turns all of it outward. And so internalizing is directly opposed to the kingdom he's bringing, which is why he says it's darkness. Okay, here's the last one, the last reason he gives us. So he says where your treasure is, your heart will be. If you don't see clear in light of the kingdom of heaven, it's gonna be all dark and it's gonna be difficult and no wonder there's discontent. And the last one, he looks at verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters for you either hate the one and love the other or you be devoted to the one and despise the other. And here's what he says, so familiar. You cannot serve God and wealth. Okay, track with me for a second. One of the greatest lies that Satan pulls over on us is that we can live our lives and absolutely go after money, absolutely go after stuff, absolutely go after uh, acquisition and accumulating stuff, and then come to church once or twice a month to sort of be well-rounded, you know, a little bit worldly, a little bit spiritual, that we can go after money and then just sprinkle Jesus on the backside and still call ourselves followers of Jesus. This is absolutely a lie he pulls over on us all the time. The problem with that is that Jesus explicitly says here, that's not possible. You can't serve God and money. It's not not possible. You can only have one master in your life. You can't serve money and say you love God. I'm just trying to say in multiple ways what Jesus is saying here because it's striking to us. You can't just go after money and pursue it to accumulate for yourself and then also say, I love God. We try that all the time. He says you actually can't do that. If money is your master, if it's what you are after and what you're bending your life around, God is not your God So if that stings, <laughs> I'm just trying to articulate it, how all week I sat under this and was stung myself. Because I feel all the ways in which money is my own God. And so a question you might have as we wrap up today. Why does Jesus draw such a line in the sand here? Because he clearly does. You can't serve God and money. No, I can. I I can do it. I'm I'm responsible. I'm over 21. I spend responsibly, right? I can do it, God. You can't. Why does he draw such a hard line in the sand? Like, why, why does he do that? The reason is because money is absolutely a master. Your debt ledger and your anxiety prove it. What happens when your masters disagree? Who wins? Right? Like, what happens when they disagree? The problem is, money sets itself up to make all the same promises and make all the same claims to us that God does. That's the problem, right? Money actually presents itself as a capital M God, money, king money. On one side, money offers to us salvation. It claims to give us security and stability in the midst of a chaotic world. Here's what money says to you. If you come after me and you give everything to have more of me, even if the world around you crumbles and relationships fail, you will still be secure and you will still be in control because you have me. Now, hey, listen. I'm not saying that money's not helpful. Totally is but money doesn't do anything at the gut level of your anxieties. Money can't do anything at the gut level of your loneliness and your illness. Last I checked, money hasn't kept anybody alive. There's lots of people with lots of money who are remarkably dead and not saved. Right? So it offers you salvation despite the fact that it can't keep its promises. On the other hand, Money promises to give you worth and value. So here's what money says to you. If you come after me, I'll make you beautiful. I'll get you what you want. I'll cover you with the clothes that you want. I'll numb your pain. I'll validate you. I'll make you feel important. I will prove you. I will give you a thrill. When you hit, when you hit the, 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 when you click the cart button, I'll give you thrill. And I'll fill your soul when you see packages arrive at your door. (laughs) We laugh because we do get excited, right? Like, it's here! But that's money talking, right? And this one totally convicts me because this is where I am. And yet here's what I want you to find in the irony of this. Those who want to seek security and salvation from money look at those who want to seek beauty and value from money as like totally self-indulgent. They just spend like crazy. They have no idea the power of the almighty dollar. And then those who seek beauty and worth from money look on the other side at those who are seeking salvation from money as pretentious misers, just stingy Scrooge McDucks, right? But here's what's ironic. Both are looking to money and possessions to do for them what only God can do. Both are doing that. And so you say, okay, okay, I get it. Like, how do I know? What's the litmus test for how I know if I'm serving God or money? Because no one raises their hand and goes, okay, I'm that guy. Like, I, I'm, I'm that one in the church. Like, no one does that. So how do we know, right? How do we know? Has your choice of lifestyle hindered kingdom generosity? Has, your, has the standard of your life the standard of your living, the expectations of the kind of amenities that I have to have in my life, has that hindered your ability to be generous? If you aren't at a place where you can support the mission of God through the local church because of priorities in your budget, then Jesus is saying, there's something wrong with your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also If you would say, Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. And yet your record of expenses doesn't reflect anything to do with that hope. Your heart is off. Mine too. Mine too. The point Jesus is making is that your choice of lifestyle, your standard of living should not impact your kingdom generosity. If we believe Jesus, it should be the other way around. There's actually a standard of living that I don't get to have because of Jesus. There's amenities that I won't get to enjoy because of Jesus. And that's better. The problem is we don't typically see that as better. Right? Generosity ought to limit the lifestyle And I feel all of that in my own inconsistencies. But this is is what Jesus is laying out for us. So so here's, here's the bottom line. Just consider this with me. At the end of the day, money offers you the good life and asks you to sacrifice your life to take possession of it. But Jesus makes the offer of life and he sacrifices his own for you to have it. Money and possessions demand your life with promises they can't keep. Jesus lays down his life to prove that he really does keep all of his promises. Money and possessions have ripped apart untold numbers of families and relationships. Jesus was ripped apart in our place, in order to make a way for us to call his father, our father, in order for us to have him as our older brother and unite us to a host, the brothers and sisters, in the church. Money and possessions have absolutely crushed families. Jesus was crushed to give us a family. Without Jesus, this conversation doesn't make sense. Without Jesus, there is no heaven, there are no treasures, And God cannot be ours. But because of Jesus, his perfect life, substitutionary death, and his resurrection from the dead that proves our sins really are forgiven, not only do we get heaven, not only is there such a thing as treasures there, but we also get God there. And then along with him, all things else as we inherit what belongs to Jesus when we rule and reign with him over the cosmos when the trumpet blows. There's never going to be a day in heaven when you look back at something down here on earth that you had to sacrifice because of Jesus and wished you hadn't. That that day's not going to happen. We're in the presence of Jesus. You go, you know what I wished I had before I got here? A little bit more stuff. When the whole cosmos is yours along with Christ. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.